J. Guru Dave. Registration is now open for Tom's 2024 Australian tour. Once again, Tom will be giving knowledge sessions and group meditations, as well as a four-night, five-day rounding retreat in Jeringong. If you haven't learned Vedic meditation yet, Tom will be teaching Vedic meditation while in Sydney, as well as advanced techniques to those who have already learned Vedic meditation. Tom's Australia tour runs from June 6th to the 30th, and you can find out more at tomknowles.com slash Australia. Sahana Vavatu Sahana Bhunakhi Sahaviryam Karavahavahe Tejasvi Navakitamastu Navidvishavaha Do you think time travel is possible? I think only time travel is possible. I don't think there's any possibility other than time travel. What do I mean by that? In any given moment, your sense of what now means is relatively limited. Now, now, now. Each one of those nows went by, and now that time is in the past. Now, 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 now. All right, so what does now mean to you? Now has a different meaning in different states of consciousness. The now of a flea. A flea's life might be, I'm not an entomologist, so I don't really know, but I'm going to guess that there might be a week or two that a flea lives. If I'm wrong about that, Please don't write in and tell me. But it's enough to say that fleas live very short lives compared to humans. What is a flea's version of now? It must be now, 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 compared with us. <laughs> now for us might be one second. Now for a flea has to be a microsecond compared to a human because a flea lives its entire lifetime in a period of time where we might just be binging on the TV series. And so, what does now mean? What is a lifetime? How long is a life? There are beings whose consciousness state is more comprehensive than that of a human. And for them, one lifetime of ours in the same way that a flea's lifetime is very short compared with ours. One lifetime of ours would be just the now of one of those beings. In Sanskrit, we refer to these beings as deva, D-E-V-A, deva, deva. It's where we get the English word divine. That intelligence that is personified at the subtlest level of the manifest world and identified with 
the laws of nature themselves. So if there's a being for whom one entire human lifetime feels like a second, is it possible that you could transcend the limitations of your concept of time? To transcend means to step beyond, for those who are new to this phraseology that you could transcend the limitations of what you consider to be time and now, that you could settle into a deeper and deeper and deeper and quieter and quieter and quieter, more and more vast, less and less bound consciousness state, and therein experience the now as what average person would experience as one whole lifetime? The answer is yes, and we do it every time we practice Vedic meditation. When our mind settles down to the least excited state, our awareness settles down into that state where the sense of I, the I, the me, is now becoming something bigger, more vast, less bound by all of the localized stories. I went here, I went over to Circle K, I bought some lollies for my kids, then I went home, I had this and I had that, wow, what a day. Did some work, shoveled some rocks somewhere in Louisiana. Maybe I got paid, maybe I'm waiting to get paid, maybe I spent a day in jail, who knows. Maybe I spent a year in jail. These little eyes, I, who's the I? When we settle down into our least excited state in meditation, the I, not E-Y-E, like the human I, no. We're talking about I, capital I, the knower, the knower, the one who's doing the knowing, the I. The I begins to expand and expand and expand and expand. And this expansion of consciousness is also an expansion of chunk of time which you consider to be now. When our mind is at its least excited state, then we can say nitya in Sanskrit. The word is nitya. The mind has become eternal. Nitya. Nitya. Immortal. The eternal immortal. That consciousness state is capable of capturing what the average person would refer to as past and future. Past and future are all within the now of the biggest consciousness state. And this explains a few phenomena that happen to Vedic meditators. You come out of your meditation and things begin to happen in the world in the usual way. And what is that change? There are certain patterns and routines, but then there's change as well. Things come along that change the ever-repeating them, and you start to feel more and more adaptive to the change. Why is that? You kind of felt it coming. You sensed the future in the making, and the change was not, in fact, all that surprising to you. We call it being more adaptive, but... Isn't it true that we actually, in a more intuitive way, 
rather expected what is happening. One feels at home with all change. One feels at home with all events. Events don't feel foreign anymore. And one is always prepared to deal with that which one expects. And so then, as we gain wisdom, gain expanded awareness, we gain knowledge of the future in the making. And the past is there, too. We can experience the easy access to whatever has already gone down, that the present is made up of the past. But that which is yet to happen starts to appear in our consciousness as a memory. We start to feel as though we're remembering the future. It feels like a memory. And as the future rolls in, it's not surprising anymore. One is already preconditioned, pre-adapted to all of the events that come in. When we have a radical change of expectation in regular life, then we get stressed. Stressed comes from having changes of expectation that are not within the framework of what we thought was going to happen. Overloads of experience. But when we live a life at our baseline, we sense how the present is constructing the future and you can sense it. An analogy I've used before, because I witnessed it once, an adult is sitting in a living room. There is a fire in a fireplace. There's a little crawling toddler in the room as well. And there is a child of about five years of age sitting in the room. A log shifts inside the fireplace and a glowing coal comes rolling out onto the hearth. From 20 feet away, the little baby sitting on the floor sees the new glowing toy that's just rolled onto the hearth and fascinated by its properties has a look on his face like it's about to start crawling toward it. The five-year-old in the room, not yet as experienced as the full-fledged adult, doesn't notice anything at all. Whereas the full-fledged adult can see the future in the making. Unless I intervene, that toddler is going to crawl to the glowing coal and try to touch it. And there'll be screams of pain. And so one person in the room can see the future in the making and gets up and intervenes and designs the future differently. Another person in the room, a five-year-old, can't see any future in the making. They're too busy playing with their truck, their toy truck. They can't see anything at all happening. They don't have the capacity to intervene and design the future differently. They only have the capacity, if the child, if the baby had crawled and grabbed the coal, to react, to be reactive. And there'll be various levels of skill in being reactive or responsive. But the big seer in the room, the adult in my parable, in my analogy, is the one who can actually 
design a different future because of the ability to see the future in the making. That's time travel. That is the ability to experience how the past empties into the present and the present is now emptying into the future and you begin to see all of the elements that are going into the making of the future and you're invited to be a designer of the future. This is the Vedic version of time travel. Jay Gurudev. Is the law of attraction a myth? I don't think that the words law of attraction mean anything. I think it's when I look it up, it turns out to be a trademark, which if you ever want to speak it, you'd better be sure you have a license because somebody's going to come after you if you don't. Law of attraction. What is it supposed to mean? As you think, so things will become. You will attract unto you that which you think repetitively. So the idea basically is if you re repetitively think lots of negative things about yourself, you structure that reality. If you repetitively think lots of positive things about yourself, you'll structure a positive reality. Now, this is fairly kindergarten in the spiritual world. I think everybody already knew that. Even people who weren't spiritual knew that. Don't be a defeatist. Your grandmother could have told you that. Don't be a defeatist. Be somebody who thinks positively about things and make the positive things happen. We don't have to trademark that stuff. So if you have a good attitude about yourself, then you'll have a good attitude probably about others too. And you'll be able to make more things happen. Grandma could have told you that. Fantastic stuff. Okay. Do we need to make a big deal about it? No. What is actually going on? That's what we want to know. Law of attraction, blah, blah, blah. What is actually going on? What's actually going on is that individuality always is in a process and on a mission to understand on the level of direct experience what individuality actually is comprised of. Here I am in my room looking around right now and where I'm sitting. It's a beautiful sunset happening and the light is coming in and glistening all around the room and flickering on things. And It's also fantastic. I'm the knower. If I was sitting here with a migraine headache and wishing that people loved me more and feeling like I don't want to eat and I'm already anorexic or something, then what does the sunlight coming into the room mean to me? It means absolutely nothing. It might even be annoying. Let me draw the curtains down. I can't stand seeing all this sunlight come in. But if the knower is in a state of bliss, the beautiful angular golden sunlight flickering through the trees, dancing like galaxies dancing in space, flickering on the rug around me, enlivening everything it touches, the world going through transition as the earth turns away from the bright, sunny part of the day into the part of the space where I can look out and see all the stars that are away from the sun all the constellations and the galaxies and 
the shooting stars, the meteorites. We're about to enter into another beautiful phase of yet another miraculous day. Okay, well, now we're on to something. Some kind of productive outcome is going to come from that consciousness state. Who am I? What am I? The knower is what decides what the room is. It's a stupid room, and I hate it, and I want to pull the blinds and make the sun stop dancing around here because I have a migraine headache. What is that? The surroundings are created by the state of consciousness of the knower. And so what is the most important thing? Seems to me the law of attraction people who I meet far too regularly are in belief that you're going to get a better, happier life if you get stuff. The universe is your sugar daddy and it's just waiting for you to say to it with great clarity and with belief what it is you want. What it is you really want, we'll give it to you. To me, this is ignorance. The universe is not the sugar daddy. The universe is all. It is everything. It is you. Individuality is cosmic. To what extent have you realized it? This is the question in the Veda. The universe is cosmic. To what extent have you realized it? This is the truth. This is the reality. You are cosmic. Your individuality and your universality are one. You're not going to get that realization by getting stuff. I'll get a lot of stuff, get a lot of things, get things I want. I want a million dollars. What happens to somebody who's in impoverished consciousness when they get a million dollars? They continue to behave like an impoverished person. That's what happens. Universe is causing you to desire what it is you're desiring. Universe is the source of desire. Individuality is not going to be made better by fulfilling petty desires. Individuality needs to rise out of its ignorance about its cosmic value and to have a direct experience. I am one with the universe. Vedic meditation gives us that direct experience. Vedic meditation gives us that capacity, knowledge of the knower, knowledge of the knower. Life is not going to be made better by you attracting stuff or for you to cease attracting stuff. It's not about attraction. It's about transcendence. Step beyond all of this relativity Experience what you actually are. Stabilize that in your life. Make that your deep inner experience, not just a faith in it, an actual experience of it, and then live it in everyday life. This is our program. We're not worried about what we attract or what we distract or are we attracting bad stuff or are we attracting good stuff? Who is the we? Step out of this thing of all I am is an individual that might be attracting stuff I don't want or I'm not attracting stuff I do want. Attraction has nothing to do with anything. It's all about 
transcendence, step beyond all of this relativity and experience the truth. I am totality. This is the truth. And the sooner we do that and get on with that without all of these other law of distraction, then the better. Hi, Tom. My name is Claudia. I'm from Mugulamba in New South Wales, Australia. And I was wondering what your thoughts were or the Vedic worldview thoughts were on electricity. Electricity as we know it, like turning on a light and its relationship with electrical impulses in the body. And the other thing that I was wondering was whether you had any opinion or thoughts on what's I think known as vibrational essences, things like bark flower essences or Australian bush flower essences where the idea is that the extract of the flower or the plant is able to support us in some way by taking some droplets of a homeopathic dosage. Thank you. Thank you, Claudia. And I, I remember Mwilamba very well. You live in a beautiful place. The first one, the electromagnetic radiation, or EMR, as it's commonly abbreviated. There's absolutely no doubt that in addition to electromagnetic radiation from lights and light switches and light bulbs and light-emitting diodes, LEDs, and all of that, that there must be some effect on us that interrupts us. There are some people who say that a tremendous number of social problems began with the invention of the light bulb because we were able, in a very easygoing way, to stay up through the night and not even sleep after the light bulb was invented. But some of those ideas are a little far-fetched because there are famous stories of people who, before the invention of the light bulb, spent all night reading or writing under gaslights or reading or writing under the firelight from the fireplace. Abraham Lincoln was one of those people who was reputed to have read many, many books as he was becoming a lawyer by the firelight of a fireplace in the cabin in which he was studying. So what is the effect of all of that? Well, let's look at the fact for one thing, and let's look at invincibility for another thing. The Vedic worldview is not a worldview that says, let's be sure that we avoid all things that could possibly affect us negatively. The Vedic worldview is all about, let's strengthen ourselves and make ourselves resilient. Not so that we can poison ourselves or subject ourselves intentionally to toxicity with impunity, but let's make ourselves resilient both to the negative effects of the toxicity of life and living. I mentioned gaslight before because whatever the toxicity is of electromagnetic radiation, it was well known prior to the invention of the Edison light bulb that the greatest danger was the danger of the gasification of houses. People had gas coming into their houses and were burning gas late into the night to have effective lighting in their homes and streetlights that were powered by gas. There would be 
a huge outcry today if that much gas was being expelled and all the toxic afterburn effects from gas in anyone's home today. So whatever the effect of the Edison light bulb and the electromagnetic radiation that accompanies the broad use of electricity in a home setting, whatever the effect of all of these things is, is far less than the effect that we were setting ourselves up for if gaslighting had continued to advance at the rate that it was. So there's been some improvement, although the process of life and living means that we must, by definition, be constantly in contact with imperfect things. Water that is not absolutely pure to drink. Food that has been prepared by people in negative mindsets or in less than standard sanitation or the creation of non-foods, which people are encouraged to consume, but they don't actually qualify as being food, and so on and so on and so on. So, Are we going to live our life by dodging all the bullets, or are we going to become more bulletproof? The Vedic worldview is to develop a state of consciousness and then a physiology that prints out from that state of consciousness which can absorb and eliminate toxicity and toxic effects rather than putting us in a position where we can't enter into a place because there's too many electrical cords in there or the light bulbs might be having a bad effect on us. And any worldview that asks us to revert to being Paleolithic or going back to Neolithic times, the people who were our ancestors of 130,000 years ago, they didn't actually live lives where they were any better off than us. They had problems of their own caused by lack of access to things that we know today scientifically are life improvers. So developing more invincibility, that means not being so stressed the biggest and most toxic thing. We might be concerned about electromagnetic radiation, but not concerned about the 100,000 stresses that we have in our body that may cause us to, when we ingest food, even nectar-like food ingested by somebody who's stressed, the body of the stressed person can turn the nectar-like food into toxin. Likewise, the body of an enlightened person whose body is producing all kinds of celestial biochemicals, can turn even toxic food into nectar. And so then, it's not so much what we take in from the environment, it's what are we doing with what we take in. To what extent do we have the ability to stabilize and purify? And with what speed can we stabilize and purify? So that addresses, I think, largely the question of electromagnetic radiation. There's no question that EMR has some negative effects on people. There's a lot of scientific debate about it, about what the extent of the effect is, and longitudinal studies are still in the making. But in the meantime, instead of running from toxic environments, we need to become invincible to them. And 
Then, as regards Bach flower remedies, homeopathy, and Australian bush flower remedies and things like that, all of it's true. From my perspective, the effect of vibration on food substances and on water and on various medicaments is a definite effect. We live in a quantum mechanical world. We live in a world that is a response to the state of consciousness that is observing it. And so if we can adjust more of those things, but again, we come back to how much stress are we retaining in our body? If we have beautiful substances to consume that are vibrationally sound and even blessed, but our body is a stress bag body, then our body's going to turn all of that into toxin very quickly. So the number one most important thing is to let our consciousness become self-realized, capital S, self. And for that consciousness to then print out a body that is invincible, able to detect and use the subtlety of things that are subtle, and able to repair and maintain its physiology even when there are damaging environmental phenomena around us that we're forced to live with. We need to have self-realization for all purposes. Jager Dave.